Carnivorous couch, shit happens once a week. It swallows us for two hours when we try to sleep. It forces us to watch a film about which we then speak. Carnivorous couch with Brady and Rob. Hi everybody, hi everybody, hi everybody. Welcome to another episode of Carnivorous Couch, uh, where we do a film a week from Two Film Geeks. This is the 2007 uh, In the Wild by uh, Sean Into Penn. Into the Wild. What? I- Into the Wild. What did I say? In the Wild. Whatever. Two is like a, it's kind of a useless word, right? Well, it's... Um. In the wild would be like he's already there. Into the wild is the process, I guess. It's it's a direction. Into the wild is a direction. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I rather suppose that's true. Uh, anyway, 2007 Sean Penn directed movie Into the Wild. That's what we're doing this week. Uh, I'm Rob. I'm Brady. Yes, and we're we're both here. We're both, yeah, here in the studio, the new studio. Yes, the moon-based studio. S- spacious. Yes. <laughs> spacious. Yeah, moon, spacious, moon-based, yes. Uh, anyway, you want to uh, talk about it? Because uh, you've seen it a billion times. And yeah, I yeah, I can do the plot it. rundown. Yeah, why not? Okay, so this is the true story of Christopher Johnson McCandless, uh, based on the book Into the Wild by John Krakauer. Uh, and this is something that really happened. Chris is a 24-year-old kid uh, who graduated from Emory University. 22 when he starts, right? Oh, yeah, 22 when he starts, because, uh, yeah, the story covers a period of about two years. And, uh, yeah, essentially, it's this kid who graduates from Emory University in Georgia. He belongs to a good, wealthy family. Uh, well, I don't know if I'd say good, but... He's a, a child of privilege who decided that uh, he didn't want that. He didn't like what society itself represented. And he went on a process of tramping across America with the eventual goal of getting to Alaska. So when we first meet him, uh, we see him coming to Alaska and getting dropped off. And one of my favorite shots of, of that or any year, uh, and maybe my favorite shot of the film, I'd say, we have this car uh, driving just along the periphery of a field filled with snow. So what the camera's really focusing on is just this kind of spot of wilderness. And the actual civilization is just kind of barely encroaching into its frame. And the car drops Alex off. Or Alex. <laughs> Alex is the name he takes on. Alexander Supertramp. Right. But his to, real name is Chris. Yeah, his real name is Christopher Johnson McCandless. But I guess we'll call him Alex because... Uh, for a while, that's what he wanted to be called. Yeah, it was the name he wanted to be called. Yeah, until the end. Um, so anyway, like you say, that you know, kind of reminds me of me when I was just getting out of college and mm-hmm. blah, 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 which is why I really wanted to see this movie. But what you skipped was that we open with like the mom in the night, like like yes. waking up and, and crying and being like, I, I, just, I thought I heard his voice. And it's really intense. And the first five times I tried to watch this movie, I was probably stoned. Um, and so I had trouble with that scene and I turned it off. Even though that scene's going to be like 10 seconds long or something. I know. Well, the funny thing is, I mean, that scene is intense, but now I realize you didn't know how this thing ends. So I, I can only imagine what you must have thought about that 
that very abrupt kind of visceral opening we get. We also get a, a Byron, Lord Byron poem that kind of gives a little bit of, you know, one of the themes of the movie, this idea. It ends with the quote that I love not man the less, but nature more. So it's about the psychology of a guy who who doesn't really like society, doesn't like the idea of living in big groups of people. Yeah, and he's constantly quoting books throughout, you know, throughout his childhood. Yeah. At, at the, it's one of the things they say about it is that he was able to bend, you know, the words of Jack London or the mm-hmm. words of uh, Thoreau. Uh, Thoreau or somebody like that to any occasion, you know, at, like he always found the perfect thing to say from those words that kind of, uh, you know, showed what he, how he felt like things should be looked at. Right. Okay, so what happens is, as he's about to trap, uh, trek off into the wild, the person who picked him up and gave him the ride is just like, okay, wait, hold on. Like, guy clearly thinks this kid is nuts. He's like, okay, fine, take these boots. Like, these will help you survive, these snow boots. And if you manage to make it through this idea of yours of camping out in the Alaskan wilderness for three months, my number's in there. You can call me, and I'll pick you up. And he says, okay, and he treks off into the wild. And we get that title screen right there that says that's where he's headed. And, yeah, we get a montage of him kind of trekking there. And he finds this old abandoned construction bus in the middle of nowhere. Its motor's been taken. But he thinks, okay, this will be a good place for me to set up camp. And he etches kind of an engraving for himself in a plank of wood commemorating his uh, killing of his ego, killing the false being within, he calls it. And from there, we flash back to him graduating from college he has lunch with his parents after graduation, and they're like, oh, your your car, like, it's going to blow up. We're going to buy you a new one. And he's like, what? It's it's just rusty. It's a perfectly good car. I don't want stuff. I don't want you to communicate your love for me through materialism. And real quick, you did say that I didn't know how it ended when I saw this. Uh, that's true. Um, and I forgot to say this is a spoiler. Full podcast, so we will spoil the entire movie, oh, especially yes. even in this plot synopsis. So we if you will. haven't watched it and you care... Um, you should go watch it first. Anyway, yeah. go on, Brady. I didn't, yeah, I didn't mean to watch leave it, that part Read off. the book. The book's supposed to be good. I'm going to catch up to it one of these days. Um, so anyway, yeah. So he goes from this lunch with his parents, and we quickly see that he's had a plan in mind all along. From there, he donates all of his life savings to the Oxfam charity. He cuts up his credit cards, his license, and he basically goes out on the open road, starts this journey that will culminate in him uh, ending up in Alaska. Well, we flashed to that, but he did actually go move into an apartment and blah, blah, blah. First, oh, well, he, and then he leaves from there with some money, and then he ends up burning that when... Well, that's where he lived during college. Whatever. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, so he's... Yeah, he and so he heads out to uh, Arizona, where his car is quickly uh, demolished in a flash flood. He doesn't seem to care. In fact, the only thing he I does... I always felt like he parked it there on purpose. Yeah, I think... Yeah. I get that feeling, too. And what he does is... Uh, the next morning, he takes the license plate off and throws it away where someone, where no one will find it. That's that's how you abandon a car. You take the plates off. Yeah, no, smart you, thinking. For, well, I mean, for for future reference, Brady, when you have to abandon your car. Okay. Or, uh, you know, well, listeners out there, if you're there, um, if you have to abandon your car, maybe scratch off the serial numbers, VIN numbers, and uh, take off the plates. Yeah. It works better with old cars because they have fewer VIN numbers. <laughs> So, yeah, uh, then we see uh, basically he's at Lake Havasu, which is it's funny. If you know anything about Havasu, it's the exact kind of place a kid like this wouldn't want to be. It's basically where all the party girls and dumb college guys go. To, it's a big lake where people houseboat, and it's it's a, 
<laughs> and we get this shot of a water skier going by him, and he's just kind of standing there looking nonplussed. And this is kind of the world he's trying to get away from. And so his first destination is uh, the Sierras in California. And he goes hiking there for a bit, and he gets picked up. Oh, special caller. No, it's somebody from Texas. I don't I don't think we want to talk to them. Ah. To just pick it up and it'll be like, This is Kaiser calling <laughs> on a Saturday. The yeah. Kaiser. Wow. <laughs> well, we better answer that. Um so yeah, he uh spends some time hiking around the Sierras and there he meets uh the first of many uh wonderfully acted, wonderfully drawn supporting characters. He meets uh Jan and Rainey. A couple of hippies, uh, rubber tramps they call themselves because they're hippies with a vehicle. And uh, they're played by... The rubber hitting the road. Exactly. Uh, They're played by Catherine Keener, an actress I love, and a non-professional named uh, Brian Dierker, I think. And he was actually the river rafting consultant on the film, but he had such a natural presence. They said, you know what? You could actually play this part. We're just going to stick you in there, Uh, which is, you know, good job, Sean Penn. Non-professionalism is... uh, a genre, or not a genre, but a technique of film that uh, should be used more often, I think. And so he meets with them, and he quickly comes to see that they're kind of having a little bit of a, a marital thing, which we don't find out immediately what it is, but since I'm spoiling the whole film, I'll, I'll tell you. Uh, Jan had a son kind of like Alex who went off on his own and left her and kind of went off and doesn't really communicate with them much, I think. Interestingly, they're like total hippie Tramp people. Yeah. Like he wants to be. Yeah, they're so like him. It does call into question what did the son leave them to go do? Maybe maybe they he wanted to be more materialistic and be more involved in society, uh, yeah. etc. Well, and that's the, the perspective they give him is what you're feeling is valid because, uh, you know, his running away has a lot to do with his parents. Right. But all kids all around the world can tend to be a little harsh on their parents. And, you know, you see us, we're very sympathetic and look at us, we're going through something pretty similar. Uh, so anyway, we we get this moment where the uh, Brian Dierker character, uh, Rainey, talks to Alex and we see the Catherine Keener characters walking you know, off on the beach. I've loved that woman a lot of years, bro. Loved her a lot of years. Man, all is not well on the hippie front. And so he says, you know... There's a, a story. She has a story and this thing that they've kind of been trying not to talk about. Once Alex showed up, because Alex, a young man, she's starting to talk about it loudly again and it's creating rifts in their relationship. So Alex says, you know, even though I'm afraid of water, I'll go swim with her and try to bring her back around. Uh, if or, you carry or the more firewood. spend time with her as a surrogate son. I think. Yeah, it's spend time like with she's her. She's been feeling like... You're like my boy. I wish my boy were here, but you're here, so we'll just hang out with you. Yeah. Uh, and I can feel a little bit better about stuff for a little while. Yeah, yeah, and and that seems to work. She, They come back from swimming, and she runs to her husband. And is like, oh, hold me, I'm cold. And so Alex kind of has this way with people we come to see. He's He's very good at talking to people and extending himself to people. Even though the interesting thing we also do, we know where in the timeline this is anyway. It's just like one of the first things he does. Oh yeah, it. Other than the cross cutting to the uh, magic bus in Alaska, everything else is chronologically. It, oh okay, sound. there's some sequence. Okay. Yeah, and so, uh, but what we also come to see, Alex is very good at bonding with people, but he's also very very good at leaving because Alex is a solitary kind of guy at heart, and. Uh, 
So he goes from there and he leaves them a note in the sand and Keener and Rainey hug and she's like, oh, you know, when he came, it reminded me of, of him. And so yeah, the son. Yeah. Yeah, and from there, Alex goes to, uh, uh, well, I mean, we do cr- cut back to Alaska and we see Alex is kind of trying to, he's we having a bit to of a Alaska hard time. And we also cut back to his childhood and, and like, yeah, we get snippets where we find out about all that. And so at that point in the film, I think he's having a bit of a hard time in Alaska. Not a lot of food is showing up. And then he ends up in South Dakota working for a grain company. Uh, for a character named Wayne, played by Vince Vaughn, in one of the last uh, performances by Vince Vaughn, I can remember where he's not playing himself, uh, which is very and where nice you were good. Yeah, seriously, man, swingers. you're good. Be be good. Be good again. Be good. You're also really tall. I hear. Be good. And so, yeah, and he, once again, he establishes this connection. He's very good with people, and he enjoys kind of the humble life of just working. This job that maybe some would consider a dirty job. He's vacuuming out grain cellars and getting corn dust in his lungs. But Being a member of society. Yes, a society. 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 (laughs) Yeah, and we get that great scene in the bar where he outlines his plan to Wayne to uh, go into Alaska. And he says like he thinks society is sick. He doesn't understand why judgment and oppression exist. (coughs) And society. Uh, Wayne uh, helps bring this voice that I think the film has, which is we sympathize with Alex, but the film is also willing to point out where he's wrong because in the end the film will arrive at kind of a synthesis. And he says, you know what, you're right, but it's a mistake to get yourself to poison your own soul and thought process with thoughts like that because people are also good. And so it's a mistake to let yourself get carried away in this kind of Darth Vader-y anger at the universe uh, when you should think more positively. Uh, and so he says, oh, and by the way, since you're going to try to survive on your own, go talk to my buddy Kevin, the other co-worker. He'll tell you how to hunt and preserve meat. And so we get this uh, snippet, this very prophetic foreshadowing, where he's telling him what you need to do, and you need to keep the flies off it. And he says, well, if you don't, if the flies land there, it's too late. He repeats it. It's too late. Yeah, you got to get it done in an hour, maybe two, if it's warm weather. Even even faster. Yeah, and this foreshadows to an incident later in the film where Alex will kill a moose uh, and it won't work. He won't get it preserved in time. And so from there, uh, Wayne gets arrested for having illegal satellite TV <laughs> hookups uh, that he's been selling. And so Alex needs to go somewhere else. But he's made a little money to travel with. Also, I like I like his reaction. Um, uh, we'll talk about this later, but his reaction at that point in time is like... Hey, don't worry, guys. I mean, we're going to have to close down for a while, but but Steve's got your checks, and so just go get your check from Steve. Like, he's ready to leave yeah. at a drop's notice. He knows this is going to happen eventually. Yeah, no, he knows. Which, which we'll talk about later, but it suggests something about the duality of bad people, right? He's doing crimes, right? But he's also a good person. It's making sure he's looking out for all his workers. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and he says, oh, and the last thing he tells Alex is, don't go to Alaska yet. You have to wait for spring, so head south. Uh, you know, go do something with yourself until, yeah, if you're going to live in a, an unforgiving wilderness, at least pick a good time to be there. Um, and so from there, Alex goes down to Arizona, I think, uh, kind of around the area where the Grand Canyon is. And uh, he wants to do some river rafting. And uh, this is also in the part in the film where we find out that it's not just that Alex's parents are materialistic. He's also running because... Uh, his dad had a secret life, a secret family, 
that he kept secret from them for many, many years. And so all of a sudden the kids in their adolescence found out and all of a sudden they're bastards. And it kind of uh, completely reframed how they look at themselves. You bastard. No, son. You bastard. (laughs) Nice. Um, And so and this harkens back to something Alex says, which is what he really seems to hate is hypocrisy. He says, give me truth. That's what Alex wants is honesty, honest living and honesty from the people he deals with. And so from there, we see him in the Grand Canyon area and he goes into a a government office and is like, "Okay, how uh, what do I need to do to raft a river? He's like, well, you got to have a permit. It's like, okay, well, how do I get on the waiting list? He's like, well, it's going to take you 12 years. And Alex is like, okay, 12 years to raft a river, like this bureaucratic bullshit. I'm just going to do it by myself. So he illegally takes a kayak and rafts down the rapids, and he meets a nice uh, Danish couple, uh, so, you know, some Danish hippies, basically. Yeah, they're not shy about nudity at all. Yeah, not shy about nudity. And, uh, yeah, uh, you know, he has just like a nice warm encounter with them. Uh, and plot-wise, he learns that you can take the river down into Mexico. And so he all of a sudden has to leave very quickly because the river authority is trying to catch him. Uh, so he hauls his boat up the mountain, eventually makes it to Mexico. We see him driving, hitchhiking past, I think, the Hoover Dam. And uh, then uh, we get this flashback kind of he's explaining to a, a border agent trying to cross into the United States that he spent many weeks there. But eventually a sandstorm blew his kayak away. And so now he's trying to cross back into the U.S., back into California. Right. And... So the border's guy's like, okay, but well, you got to have ID. So, you know what? I'll be right back. We'll get your ID. And so it kind of looks like, or the film seems to imply that for a second he's having uh, second thoughts, that maybe it's time to end the adventure. It's been fun, but time to get cards again and become a, a card-carrying member of the United States. Right, yeah, and he goes to uh, a shelter to do that, right? Well, oh, but th- at that point we see him watching a TV with George Bush's face. Oh, right. And George Bush says, like, the time, like, it could not wait. Terror, like, terror. So he runs out of the office. He's like, nope, nope, I, I, I'm going to have the courage to stick this out. And he hops on a train, hitchhikes into L.A., and he we get this you moment know, son, where... You got to keep on it. You got to keep on it. You got to go get that... Uh, <laughs> You gotta go ahead and get that uh, there, uh, Osama bin Laden. So just you know, keep on it, keep on it. Good to talk to you, son. All right, son. Uh, <laughs> you keep being president, anyway. And so yeah, so he come, he sneaks into L.A. Hitch like train hitchhikes, <laughs> uh, rides the rails into L.A. And we get this moment where he's standing in downtown L.A., looking at it as if it's a prison. He's looking up at the buildings. He's just like, God, this is so bleak and depressing. Like this is what people live amongst all their lives. Just these cold sterile buildings and so uh, he goes to Skid Row and uh, gets a, a bed at a homeless shelter and also fills paperwork out to try to at least get an ID uh, wh- what is it he wants again I mean I guess yeah I guess yeah he's trying to get an ID under the name Alex Supertramp so that he can travel around yeah that's with right. uh, the proper identification like he's supposed to and so while he's waiting for that to be processed we see him uh, kind of walking around LA a bit and he walks past a downtown swanky bar, and he gets this vision of himself kind of schmoozing, being a, a slick businessman in that bar. And once again, he checks his convictions and says, no, no, like I'm, I'm doing this all the way. I don't want to become a part of this society. And so he runs off, pops on a train again, and uh, there we get a scene. Uh, we entered the chapter three, Manhood. This, this film is five chapters. Let's see if I can rattle them off. 
It's chapter one, my own birth. Chapter two, uh, something. Chapter three, Edu- manhood. education. I believe education. Chapter three, manhood. Chapter, chapter four, four, family, and chapter five, five the getting of, of wisdom. wisdom. Yeah. yeah, very good. Um, and so at the start of this chapter, a railroad dog, railroad bulldog, whatever they call those guys, uh, hauls him off the train, beats the crap it's out. Basically, of him. a union worker. Yeah, union and he worker. says something like, "Like, I don't want to catch you around here again." Uh, infringing upon our liabilities yeah something to do with like they could get some kind of legal implications for people writing without a, a contract I, I, th- I think it's just like old-timey like railroad talk <laughs> i don't I think agree. really it's just i mean like i think that's we don't what want the people problem on our is trains here. right yes but it, uh, it, it is kind of old-timey like i don't want to find you around here engaging on our liabilities <laughs> some yeah. shit like that i'm like what the fuck does that even mean and so uh, I think this is the part, manhood, a lot of these chapters deal a lot with his v- journey th- heading toward Alaska. The manhood chapter is just a lot about Alaska. This is where we see his experience with the moose, where he hunts a moose and fails to uh, preserve it properly. And it's a, for him a deeply scarring experience. He kills you know, a, a giant majestic beast and it all amounts to nothing. There's no purpose. He can't eat any of the food. It's just a killing. And so he says it's one of the biggest tragedies of his life. Uh, and so from there, we go to the chapter four family. You skip the part where he tries to work in between there, right? Oh, yeah. He, you know, just like with Wayne, he gets a fast food job. It's just a snippet, kind yeah. of a joke. Yeah. Uh, uh, but it shows that he tr- that he had to uh, get some money together in order yeah, to get to Alaska. So. It's uh, meticulous about the process of how he, how he went about getting there. Uh, so even for someone I- as idealistic as this guy, he still has to make money from time to time to be able to get around. And so... Yeah, and then he has the experience with the moose. Then we go to Chapter 4, Family, where he eventually takes Jan and Rainey's earlier advice, I didn't mention, to uh, check out a place called Slab City, which I think is an eastern... Well, we said, when, you, when you're when you done traveling around, come meet us, we'll be there. Oh, yeah, right? that's right. Oh, I don't even th- I don't even know if they said they were going to be there, but... Well, uh, we, no, we I kind think of it's pretty clear that they said, you know, that that was where they were on their way to. We, yeah, we... They might not still be there by the time he gets there, but they were saying they were going there. Okay, yeah. And uh, they'd been there before. Yeah, and uh, basically it's this place where a lot of hippies and travelers like to go in southeastern California, I think, close to the Salton Sea, called Slab City because there are a bunch of old concrete slabs from whatever used to be there. And it's uh, kind it of a community. It used to be a military base or like a silo or something yeah, like that. Yeah, something like that. And so, yeah, it's where fellow travelers kind of meet and they have musical performances and people sell their art and Jan and Rainey are selling books. They operate a book stand while they're there. And uh, there he rejoins with them, and he also meets a character played by Kristen Stewart, uh, whose name is eluding me, but um, let's just call her Kristen Stewart. Yeah, Kristen Stewart's real hot. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I, you know, for all those of you who don't like her anymore, but did like her, you know, at the beginning of her career four or five years ago, but don't like her now because she's always got a look on her face like... Uh, like she's got a plate of shit perched under her nose. Um, <laughs> she's really sad and disgusted about well, it. Well, I mean, I think it's just that, you know, if you keep the resting bitch face all the time, uh, you, you 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 look young longer. If you right. smile, you get wrinkles. That's true. But resting bitch face keeps you looking nice and young. Kristen Stewart's making that bitch face all and, the way And to, to be bank. honest, you know, there were lots of girls who were real bitchy to me when I was in high school. And I still had crushes on them. So, you know. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, uh, yeah. So we, she's so introduced a, a, to any us. girls in high school. You want a boy to have a crush on you? Don't worry about being a bitch or not. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, sound advice. <laughs> We're all about the children here. Stupid children. Yeah. Um, anyway, so we were introduced to her at a musical performance. She's kind of a singer-songwriter. And so eventually she introduces herself to Alex, has a big crush on him, even though she's only like 16. Uh, <laughs> and so they go on a date to, I think, a place called Trinity Mountain. Uh, and I mention it just because uh, part of what makes this movie good is that it really does have a, an eye for places like it, for a movie about travel, it, it is suitably focused on the details of place. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm assuming that the places were the ones that were all mentioned in the books, and they're actual places that exist because it's about a real thing. Right, yeah. And so I think it's like kind of this holy, this religious art thing where people kind of, anyway, they, they meet this kind of older, I want to say developmentally disabled man who does kind of tours around the place, and he's like, oh, I'd you know, I I just want to tell the story that God loves us a lot, and kind of kind of this old eccentric kooky guy, but very loving kind of guy. And uh, so is this the gaining a wisdom chapter? No, this is still okay. a family. Okay, I don't. Yeah, I don't remember. They they go to that place where they press their hands. Is this and the guy the, that he helps climb the mountain and blah blah blah? No, no. This no, is okay. You're talking about somebody else. Okay. Oh, oh, right, right, right. Yeah, there's that little. That's like a that's like a five second snippet that you're I know, I know. There. And so uh, then. Uh, we uh, have a scene with him and Catherine Keener that's very touching where we finally find out about her kid and she kind of you know, tells him that her own son ran away like this. And what my I'm going to say this one of my favorite line readings in the movie, because Alex is trying to play it off like, OK, OK, trying to change the subject and it's time to eat. But Catherine Keener just out of nowhere just looks at him and says, do your parents know where you are? Yeah. Um, and in like a hushed whisper. Yeah, like almost urgent. like it, almost like they're on a spaceship, and it's like the movie Alien or something. It's like, yeah. And do your parents know where you are, Newt? <laughs> Newt. Um, and then I can't talk too loud because the face sucker will get me. But do your parents know where you are? <laughs> and then finally, uh, Kristen Stewart tries to, you know, consummate <laughs> with Alex, and he says, "No, you're way too young." If you want to do I'm, something And together. I'm going to split later anyway, yeah. so you, you'll be all pissed at me when you're like, you slept with me, and then you split. But anyway, we're going on a 27-minute plot synopsis. I know, I know. Here, so there's a lot of plot. Okay, I'll, I'll accelerate here. Uh, so then, it, so he basically says, if you want to do something, like we can play a song together. So that's what they do. And then from there, Alex leaves because he finally gets his check in the mail. What he's been waiting on is his check so he can make the final uh, journey up to Alaska, Uh and so Jan takes him to, uh, you know, I think a gas station or something or to the post office, drops him off and uh, gives him a hat that she promised she'd knit for him. And we see this hat earlier in the movie. It's an orange knit hat. And he actually uses it to uh, place on a stick as a landmark mm-hmm. when he crosses a river. And so from there, we enter the final chapter, the gaining of wisdom. And so Alex, you know, taking Wayne's advice, still needs to wait out some of the winter months because it's basically Christmas, New Year's at this point. And so he decides, okay, I'm going to practice climbing mountains. And he finds a nice big mountain near the Salton Sea. And while he's at a gas station getting supplies, I think, an older gentleman, a man in his 70s, uh, picks him up. He's like, oh, if you need a ride, I'll take you to your campsite. And so we find out this man's name is uh, Ron Franz, which... Maybe and he's not camping at a campsite. He's just like on top yeah, of the no, mountain, he, and he's just like, uh, what? Why up here? 
<laughs> and yeah, and we find out it's because he wants to climb. And so, but he's next to a nudist colony, so the old man is very just like, whoa, oh, very. Why don't you go down there with the the nudist? Why don't you the nudist down there? You know, you're a young, uh, good-looking nude boy. I mean, not nude right now, but. <laughs> And and Alex is a very energetic sort, so pretty much from the get-go, he tries to get Mr. Franz to climb this mountain so he can get a view of the Salton Sea, and Ron says, I don't do things like that. Uh, and so Alex goes and has dinner with him, and basically over the months has a very, develops an extremely close relationship with him. We find out that Ron was in the military, and while he was away in World War II, his family, his wife and kid were killed by a drunk driver. So now he kind of lives a lonely, hermetic life. Right. Then he was a big drinker. Yeah. Then he, he eventually was able to quit. Yeah. Drank, got, became a drunkard, pulled himself together. Now he uh, makes leather products in his uh, garage. And yeah. so Alex is like, oh, I, I, would you show me that? He's like, oh, I was hoping you'd oh, say right. that. Oh, right. This is the gaining of wisdom part. Yeah. yeah. So he, he teaches Alex about leather. Alex makes a belt commemorating his journey. And eventually we get a scene, one of my favorite in the movie, where Alex basically goads Ron into climbing the mountain by telling him, you know, like, you're not doing anything and you're you're not dead yet. Like, you're still alive. You should be getting experiences because that's, to Alex, what life is about isn't social stuff, but it's about the gaining of experience, of seeing things. And so to prove him wrong, uh, Ron climbs up the mountain, uh, but he basically, come on, pussy, you can't do it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, you can't do it. And so, and he bestows, once at the top, he bestows some wisdom on Alex, which is, you know, I, I know you have your problems with the church, and I get what's going on with your parents, but you should probably, kind of like a parallel to what Wayne was saying, you should probably let some of the grudge drop off of your heart. If you can find it in yourself to forgive, when you forgive, you love. And so it's kind of tying back into this idea. The movie's very much about the tension between a solitary life and a life with people, even though people can bring a lot of mess. And, and so then we enter the excruciating final Alaska chapter, pretty much, where uh, Alex tries to leave, having learned some wisdom, having read a book, he realizes, okay, he has an epiphany. I, uh, I believe in my ideals about society and what's wrong with it, but people in general are good. So to live in a small community and to do good for people who aren't accustomed to having it done to them, just kind of a, a simpler bohemian life, but being good to people, that's the answer. But unfortunately, uh, the river forbids him from hiking out. And he actually, I think, this isn't mentioned in the movie, but I think he broke his leg. Uh, and so he's forced to spend more time in Alaska until the river goes down. And unfortunately, in this time, uh, since food is so scarce, he has to use his plant guide and a plant uh, called a... Uh, a wild snow pea, I think, which is poisonous, looks an awful lot like a wild Alaskan carrot. You know, I don't think it was even that. I think he just like like the page flipped or something like oh, between maybe. when he compared the the drawing and yeah, that might be it. And because like later on, he's like looking at it and he's flipping the page back and forth. He's going, yeah. "No, this I ate this one. I read the description for fuck, yeah, fuck." And so the symptoms of this are basically the lateral vein shutting down and you starve to death. Right. And so uh, and that is what happened to Christopher Johnson McCandless. And so and that's how the movie ends, basically. But uh, but we get one final scene with Ron where he drives him. You know, Alex tries to sneak off in the night, but Ron wakes up and says, OK, I, 
I'm going to give you these supplies. hypervigilant war veteran. Yeah, he's going to hear that shit. (laughs) Come on. (laughs) He gives him a box with snowshoes and a machete and other camping supplies and says, I'm going to drive you as far as I can so that you don't have to hitchhike in the desert because we're in southeastern California, which is, (laughs) yeah, (laughs) blighted desert landscape. And, you know, he says, I take you all the way, but I have a church service. And so they have a final conversation in the car, and Ron says, you know, my line is going to die out. You know, I don't have any kids. Maybe you'd let me, like, adopt you as kind of a surrogate grandfather. And Alex is kind of taken aback, and he says, can we talk about this when I get back? We'll talk about that later, old man. (laughs) Leading to some of the saddest facial acting I've ever seen by, uh, by the great Hal Holbrook. Uh, yeah, so then basically after that, uh, we get the scenes of him getting skinnier and skinnier, then yeah. eventually lying down to die, and the the quote at the end is something like, you know, life's experience or the gaining of experience isn't worth anything unless it's shared. Yeah, happiness is only real when shared. Ah, there you go. And so, yeah, and then, uh, yeah. I wrote, life stuff works no good unless it's shared. <laughs> I guess that's less eloquent. And, uh, <laughs> I mean, it is depressing, but I, uh, th- it ends kind of on a... An almost upbeat note because he clearly finds some kind of wisdom in his final moments and he imagines hugging his parents and says, you know, if I was back here, like clearly what you want is me to be back. Like, would you get as much joy out of this as I get out of just looking at this window for the last time and seeing the sky? So he he learns a, a hard lesson and he dies tragically, but he does kind of have a little bit of redemption and that's what it ends. All right, that's the plot synopsis. All right. Now we have to do the, um... Hey, 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 how do we like it? How did you like this movie, Brady? Uh, I, I love this movie. Yeah, I really, really love this movie. Uh, it's it's part of the great uh, 2007 crop when just a ton of, like, great and very good movies came out. Uh, we, we had a pretty good year last year, too, but 2007 was just uh, really outstanding, and this was one of the reasons why. Uh... I adore its acting. I think it's a movie uh, with a clear arterial voice. And what I like about it is it's got so many different elements that kind of all fit. But yeah, as I mentioned, the acting of the supporting characters, even down to something as small as the woman who helps him apply for a license, is just so lovingly crafted. It all. Sean Penn knows when to use non-professional actors and when to use real ones, and he's able to mix them seamlessly without the styles of acting seeming out of sync. You know, Catherine Keener, a great actual actress, and Brian Durker, a, a river rafting guide, uh, play a couple completely convincingly. And I think on down the line, uh, Hal Holbrook, amazing, would have won supporting actor that year if not for Anton Chigurh. Um Yeah, just an outstandingly acted movie, and I think I'm really... Uh, I really like the message too. I think it's a very it manages not to be sentimental about what could have been very sentimentalized. Uh, it does a good job of being empathetic with Alex, but also critical of him. And I think it arrives at a very valuable message about uh, both the problems with people, why someone would or maybe even should spend some time out on their own exploring, but why at the end of the day you also want to keep people around. Why society can be a good thing. And so, yeah, I, I just, I love it. I think this movie is great. So what's your grade? A. It's an A. All right. Um, sad to say, Brady, I don't really like this movie. Uh, that's okay. Um, but I think it's very good. For all the reasons that you just said, I, I like the 
I like how the characters can kind of over time represent like the duality of people. I mean, like Catherine Keener's character can both be someone who's a very loving, nurturing, motherly character, but then also somebody who's maybe causing a problem for her spouse and somebody who's, you know, obviously doing his best to try and support her. Right. And, uh, you know, that these two people are obviously very nice. You know, they don't quite have the problems of... uh, of Jan's son, but somehow they, you know, alienated or pissed off their son so that they, well, not their son, but I, I get the feeling I think that it it's might just that be her, her son. son. Yeah. yeah, yeah, not their son. But, um, so I think that's very good. I, I mean, it's a beautiful film. It's very well shot. I mean, the reason I don't like it is just because it's so, I mean, it, it's possibly like two, uh, it's Sean Penn. And it speaks in the voice of Sean Penn, who's basically saying, like, look how bad we all are and look how horrible all this, you know, like it if they were if this were to be related to like Haiti or, you know, any other like human like his humanitarian work is like a great thing. But sitting here and, and watching this very sad movie about this guy who's very resentful and, you know, goes on this kind of fuck you journey but then also learns a lot in the process while very good isn't a, it's not a joy to watch it's a little it's a little bit heavy on the heart and it's a little bit heavy on on the brain even though it's a good movie it's you know i'm i'm, I'm going to take a leaf out of your book and give it a b plus because i think it's a b plus a minus material in fact i'd even go so far as to just say it's an a minus but because of my conflicted feelings about it i can't really see Clearly, uh, there is absolutely no problem with the acting. There's no pro like it's a it's a perfectly put together movie. It's just hard to watch. <laughs> no, yeah, I mean you can't you can't just go with the text. You got to go with what it's saying to you. What I would say back. Well, to I mean, you I'm is, grading it based on how good it is, right? And, I, and I'm talking about it right now based on how much I like it because that's what the segment is called. Yeah, yeah. How did you <laughs> like it? Right. Um, the only thing I'd say is even though we get a lot from Alex and we get a little bit of evidence or even we get enough evidence, especially in the L.A. segments of kind of how bad humanity is. What I think makes it good for me is that we get much more evidence in the humanity is joyous column. Uh, we get, you know, so many of those people he encounters from Ron Franz to Jan and Rainey to the Danish people even the smaller people he runs across and the Vince Vaughn character. So I think the actual evidence that we see on screen tilts more toward a non-hypercritical uh, view of humanity, which is maybe a good thing to hear from a guy like Sean Penn, who is very much about you know, criticizing societal problems. All right. So should we do an uh, understudy and then maybe talk about a few of the finer points? Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. We're so sorry we couldn't get the actors to do the scene from this screenplay, but we've got two understudies, and to be honest, they're probably more famous anyway. So try to guess the actors, try to guess the movies. Tweet us at C A R N Y Couch. This game called Understudy is happening, happening, happening right now. Hi. I'm Trish. Hi, Andy's my name. This one looks pretty good. Uh, you don't want to buy that VCR. I don't? No, actually, to be totally honest with you, you don't want to buy any VCR. It's a dead technology. It's like getting an 8-track player. Yeah, or a Betamax. You know what? Actually, I'd recommend this one. This is a dual... 
you've got the VCR and DVD combo. So, you know, that technology would probably be pretty good for uh, six months or so. <laughs> yeah. At best. Uh, Sorry. Uh, that's that's okay. Uh, oh, as good as it gets. Uh, yeah, okay, that sounds good then. Uh, okay, all right. God, you know, it's it's so funny. I work right across the street, and I've, I've never been into this place. Uh, really? Where at? Oh, yeah, yeah the... Uh, we sell your stuff on eBay store. Uh, yeah, and, and that's the name? Well, I was looking for something that was, you know, obvious, so I chose that. I, I don't understand. So y- you what? Well, I, I take the stuff that you don't want, and I sell it on eBay. Uh, but, but you don't actually sell anything in the store? No, I don't. So why do you have a store? I don't know. No, it... I think it's because, you know, I maybe want to look professional and not like a crazy person who's just going to steal all your shit. I sh- sure, I, I didn't mean anything by that. No, no, it's okay. You know what? You should come by sometime if you want. You know, see it for yourself. Check it out. I'll check out your empty store. Yeah, it's the one across the street that's not empty. Here's my number, so. Uh, all right. So just any time. Why do I need your number if you're across the street, though? I don't really have a good answer for that, Andy. I just... Sorry. Just giving it to you. So, so I'll write you up and I'll, I'll meet you over at the register. Okay. And check you out. And check out. Okay, I'll see you over there. That was understood. Tweet us your answer at C-A-R-N-Y couch. What's it all about? What's it all about? It's it's about, uh, I mean, at its heart, let's go to uh, one of the wonderful Eddie Vedder tracks on the uh, on the album, one of the tracks by Eddie Vedder that is, makes up the soundtracks of this movie called Society. At its heart, it's really about that. But, you know, it's not just what it's about, but what kind of film it is. To me, in spite of the fact that it's a true story, this really is kind of what I'd call an essay film. Uh, it's scenes and what it, what's kind of happening in it to me, amounts to an essay on society, on the pros and cons, on the fact that we live in a place, yes, where power and oppression takes place, but we also live uh, in a place where when you actually meet an individual on the street, chances are you might talk to a really wonderful, interesting person. So it's it's about the value of human relationships, and it's about kind of what Alex comes upon at the end, that happiness is only real when shared. So would you consider that like a five-part essay, or like a, a five-paragraph essay, where you have these three different uh, kind of through lines that you're jumping back and forth between, like the bus, his childhood, and his journey? Yes, I would. And then those would be the three paragraphs, and then the uh, kind of his feelings at the beginning when he's uh, embarking upon the journey and then the conclusions he reaches by the end as he uh, is mortally wounded by the journey itself, the conclusion? Yeah. Uh, Even the thing with the moose kind of ties into it that, heck, we need, we kind of need each other to, to survive better. I mean, it's possible to live out on your own and it's a valuable thing to do maybe for a while, but people are better off when they depend on each other. And I think it's about empathy in that way. I think that ties into the thing that I keep thinking the most about, which is, uh, you know, kind of the duality of man and like the idea of, of rebirth of, you know, uh, being born into this uh, sort of situation where it's like, uh, well, this is kind of a fucked up 
existence that I've been plotted out for. I don't I don't agree with it. I'm going to re rebirth myself into a, a different kind of light figure instead of the dark figure pervaded by all the, all the things of society. Right. Yeah. And I mean, so the Eddie Vedder thing that I wrote down that uh, mirrors that is the the lyric "Rise up, burn my clothes, and and dark memories." And then he's got like three or four lines mm-hmm. in that stanza that are basically reiterating that point. Right. <laughs> that like, used to be my cell phone ringtone. Yeah. The I- <laughs> so so what? Like uh, your your mom calls you and, and then it just rings. It just Rise like up, <laughs> burn your clothes, <laughs> dark I, I think memories. <laughs> It had the like ding a ding a ding ding a ding ding a ding. Oh, I see. Yeah, the uh, the mandolin. Oh, is that what it is? God, yeah. I love that instrument. Yeah, yeah, it's really good in uh, Battle of Evermore too. That's a very classic mandolin song. Mm-hmm. Get um, the lead out. Yeah, and so going back to the thing I brought up in the plot synopsis that I wanted to talk more about was the duality of the Vince Vaughn character, because I mean that whole segment is basically a montage of work, play, work, play, work, play. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's basically, uh, you know, go do the sawdust thing and uh, then go fucking get drunk at the bar at night, get up hungover the next morning and do the same thing. Um, right. Okay, so all those guys are alcoholics or what? Is that necessarily a bad thing? Is it a dualistic thing? Is it kind of, you know, dumbing his brain? Because, I mean, Vince Vaughn, if he doesn't dumb his brain down with the alcohol, he's just fucking thinking about UFOs and... Right, that character is <laughs> right. th- isn't that what he's talking about? He's like, he's like, oh, yeah, he believes in Roswell. Okay, so what happened in Roswell then? <laughs> you know, okay, I'm gonna get all Dan Carlin on this. So what happened in Roswell then? Because in Roswell, the aliens obviously landed. I mean, it happened. It's definitely the thing that we're all talking about, but not saying. And the thing is, okay, so that's my Dan Carlin impression, which I've been doing a lot lately. Um, Brady hasn't listened to uh, Hardcore History yet or Common Sense. But yeah, I need to give those a listen. Uh, yes, uh, you know, free plug for you, Dan Carlin uh, listeners. If you haven't listened to a podcast that is obviously be- be- better than ours, although you should listen to all of ours. But, yeah, um, listen to ours, too. We're, we're getting us, better. And tweeted us. But, um, yeah, definitely listen to the Dan Carlin podcast, Hardcore History and Common Sense, because they're fucking awesome. Um Anyway, so the duality of man, like, Vince Vaughn is kind of that character. And like I said before, don't be a one-upper. No, um, like I said before, <laughs> uh, you know, he does this thing where he's selling, like, fucking, uh, what, pirated uh, yeah, satellite rigs? Yeah, satellite TV. Yeah, and, like, you know, but he's prepared. He's prepared so that when he goes down and he goes to prison or whatever that happens, or maybe he's got a lawyer set up and he knows he's not going to go to prison and he's got his bases covered because he seems like that kind of guy. But, you know, hey, guys, sorry, we're going to have to shut down for a while. This guy has your checks. They'll get sent to you. Everything will be okay. You know, you'll have to find a gig for the meantime, but I got you, you know? Right. So, like, there's this guy who's obviously doing something that's quote-unquote illegal and by society's... Uh, demarcations, uh, for lack of a better word, um, he's he's a bad guy, right? But he's a good guy because he's taking care of all his employees. He's taking care of everybody, mm-hmm. and uh, you know he's thinking about this kind of shit. And then at the same, so he works real hard, and then he gets all debaucherous at night <laughs> and starts grabbing women yeah. and uh, dancing around. So the duality of man, and and basically the uh, that ties in with the birth and rebirth of. Uh, somebody uh can we reinvent ourselves 
mm-hmm. and can we uh, adjust? And unfortunately, this character, uh, Chris, K- 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 Christopher Johnson McCandless. McCandless, yeah. I see. I was going with a Candless. I would have said Candless, but uh, it's McCandless, right? McCandless. Uh, so unfortunately, when he re- rebirthed himself, his second life was very short-lived. Uh, which is what happens if you're an iconoclast in society, because society don't like that, and apparently nature don't like it either. Yeah, I mean, it's really, it is just a tragic accident, like, because, yeah, what he actually learned in the course of his journey, I think, would have prepared him for a good life that was more geared toward people. I mean, he was very nice and good to people, but I think, you know, we see that by the end, he sees the value of people more than he did, and it's it's just an unfortunate fact that, this had to happen, but the but the thing, the silver lining is that life lived in two years is a really rich life. That's a that's more of a life than I think if you could talk to him more, you'd say more of a life than many he people live in seventy two. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, then there's also the idea. There was an interesting idea that I came up with when I was watching it, which was, um, you know, he goes to this bus and this bus is already, you know, it's got a mattress in it, it's got some, sh- it's shelter. And, you know, is that um, even has some rice? Yeah. And and a bag of rice. Is that cheating? Right. Like because he's going and he's using this kind of thing that's been self-prepared for him. In fact, he's had lots of technology throughout the entire film. He he prepared himself for it in that way. Right. And uh, at the end, the one main thing of technology that is how we learn about his story and everything writing is the thing that misleads him. Uh, Yeah. Because he's reading the book and he misreads the book. Now, I don't know if I'm kind of stretching the meaning too far when I say could, you know, his writing and his journey to create said book and basically the idea. Well, I mean, it's it's what actually happened. So I guess it's not contrived or anything by the filmmaker. Mm -hmm. But, you know, the idea of this this technology that he's bringing with him. Uh, kind of, he's trying to have a wholly naturalistic experience, but the fact that he brought the technology with him and and whatnot led him to make his fatal mistake. That's interesting. And and even the the largest downfall of his life is is completely based on his his uh, technology as well. That he he couldn't have fucking killed that moose on his own. He had to shoot it. Yeah, I mean, I think you know. It doesn't ring as hypocritical to me because his gripe is more with people kind of mob mentality, what happens when people live in large numbers than it is with the things they create. And we, th- we hear from his sister at the beginning, the thing he values most are the ideas found in these books. Uh, the thing that guides him is human ideas. I mean, but that is an interesting contradiction because he's running from people trying to get away from people, but. The, He's using the all the things that the, like the mass society wouldn't have built those rifles, but or, see, that's, or written those books to be read by people if there weren't a bunch of people. That's and that's the good side of humanity that we have centuries and centuries of other people's wisdom to improve our lives, and, and he seems to be okay with using that, but he doesn't want to live in in big groups because and maybe he's right. Bad things tend to happen in big groups of people. Right, but I mean. He was all by himself and bad things happened. I know. Well, you know, that's the lesson. That's part of the lesson is, you know, don't uh, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Humanity has problems. But in the end, humanity is also kind of what makes life so interesting and worth living. Uh, back on the idea of rebirth and the, and the flash flood and his uh, 
is going into the flashlight area, possibly on purpose, and then basically being rebaptized by this thing called nature. Ah, right. Baptism. Nice, Rob. Well, because he he does talk with um when he's talking uh, what's the name of the actor he said was awesome at the end? Oh, uh Hal Holbrook. Yes, Hal Holbrook. When he's talking with him, Hal Holbrook says, "You obviously have like a sense of God, right? Like I I know you you reject the church and blah blah blah. But you you obviously have a sense of a, a higher power, so you know, I encourage you to possibly explore the church again." But um you know, kind of the idea of nature as the ultimate god uh, this wave comes in and baptizes him. You know, he's parked in a flash flood area. Right. It's like a voluntary baptism, if you want to read it that way. Yeah. Um. I mean, we're obviously, as the the viewers looking through the transcendental lens, we see the flash flood sign big and prominent right in the thing. I, don't know. I guess we don't see a shot of him looking at a sign and going, yeah, flash flood. I'm going to go fucking park there and like get baptized by nature. But still, uh, that's... That's kind of a, a thing that's that's running through, which is um, that that godliness, cleanliness, all that kind of stuff um, is is nature, and that once he uh, kind of enters society with that on him, he's treated like shit. Yeah, yeah, right. Because when he goes to like, you know, he does the train hopping or whatever. Now he's covered in in dirt and soot and in this dirty t-shirt the guy won't even give him the time of day there's that scene where he goes like you got the time the guy just kind of looks at him like almost frightened and he's like the time do you know what time it is yeah because he's he's a bum in this context right he looks like yeah it's but i mean like all that dirt and grime and grit on him is is the dirt and grime and grit he got from being out in the nature right i mean i think yeah in that moment the film's asking us to think about when we see someone like that who knows what the actual cause of how they look would be because obviously this isn't some alcoholic person who's uh you know this yeah i think it's ask it's kind of just a quick moment that asks us to look at the circumstance of how a person might have got the way that they look well right if somebody comes up to you and goes like (laughs) if i had time yeah time 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 you know, like, <laughs> yeah. if they do that, well, then you can be afraid because that person's obviously drunk, crazy. But I mean, they could also be disabled or have a speech impediment. But um, so there's the other side of that. But I mean, like, then you can be afraid because this is unusual. But if somebody just looks at you and they're all dirty and everything, but they have a very fairly reasonable societal request like, mm-hmm. hey, do you know what time it is? Can you tell me? Like, shouldn't you just yeah. fucking do that? I think so. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know, since you're wearing a fucking watch, which nobody does anymore, by the way, so that was kind of unreal. Well, it was 2007. Oh, uh, yeah. Well, and it was also 1994. Oh, uh, no, here's another quick no thing. cell phones, yeah. I, I, I 92, talk- 92. Oh, yeah. I, I, I talked a lot about the supporting performances, uh, a lot of good supporting performances. What did you think of the lead performance? Uh, what's the name of the dude? Uh, Emil Hirsch. I like him. Um... It's hard to separate the charisma, charisma, um, charisma, <laughs> charisma, big mom, uh, charisma <laughs> of the character from the charisma of the actor. Um, well, to me, because that's the, the, the oh, character sorry. is obviously supposed to be very charismatic. So then you go like, okay, so is that actor being great at being charismatic, or is he just kind of a charismatic guy, and the character is charismatic because of the actor? So that's, and I only say that not to kind of pick a fight for no reason, but just because that's the thing that stood out to the most of me about the performance. Right. 
was you know, but I mean that's entirely defined by the context of where the character is. No, yeah, film. no, I think you're right. This kind of charismatic, squirrely, almost squirrely energy is a big part of the performance. What I think convinces me that it is a great performance aside from charisma is the other thing he's able to nail is the aloofness. That what makes the character interesting is this mixture of charisma and a real good ability to read people and to kind of know what people want to hear. But also kind of this aloofness, like in the scene where he walks away from the old man finally, and the old man's heart is just like on the floor of the car, just got rejected for the grandfather thing. Right. And Alex is just able to snap off his connections very, very easily. Well, yeah, I can't get involved. I got a thing to do. And so that that duality in Alex, I think, is interesting and was uh, probably tough to pull off. Mm, I, I think it's... I think it's tough for the support. I, I again, I I would give most of the credit to the supporting catch. I I think he did a good job. I'm not saying that he did a bad job. Mm-hmm. I'm just saying that the all he has to do is not react. Right. When what they're doing is reacting heavily, and the just the dichotomy between that gives that that message. Interesting. I mean, if I were directing it and I was working with a non-talented actor or just somebody who didn't quite know how to do that that's what i would direct them to do (laughs) so i mean it doesn't necessarily speak to his acting ability but it doesn't speak to his acting inability um but the charisma does because obviously if he's able to be charismatic at will on screen uh that that's good but is that just him or you know i i don't know i i would need to see more of emile hirsch in order to be able to uh right kind of characterize this particular performance he was really good in milk too uh, oh, I saw milk. milk. Who was he in Milk? He was the uh, he was the guy who was uh, really good at organizing people. Like, kind of didn't even want to be part of the campaign at first, and then Harvey Milk eventually gets him to come in, and he's like really good at getting people together. Oh, right, yeah. yeah. Uh, so in that, he was very like energetic. Yeah, and again, charismatic. Um, maybe he's just char- a charismatic guy, and it comes across on camera. Um, also, the thing I really do like about this is um, it was right before, and this isn't really a what's it all about thing, but it's just kind of a side note that I really enjoyed, is that this was shot, was it shot on film or shot digital? I don't know. I was going to say it looks like it was shot on film, which was very nice. It yeah, very it's, nice. it's it's a very nice looking film. So if I'm wrong, well, my whole point goes to shit, but... Anyway, what I'm saying is this kind of naturalistic color and this kind of naturalistic, you know, um, viewpoint from the world uh, from the world and all that looked like it was shot very much, sort of handheld on film, you know, not too fancy, right? We framed things, sure, we we put a tripod down maybe and just kind of swept the shot, but there's not really a whole lot of this this crane shit, you know. It's not it's not a high budget blockbuster picture. Right, and, and it very much lent to the um, kind of the way the film was trying to express itself. I would, I, I guess, is the best way to put it. Yeah, yeah, okay. Because you know, if you had had these giant crane, I mean, I, I think there's a couple helicopter shots of a train rolling by, you know, after. But we see more of the, you know, first person shot from the side of the train, mm-hmm. like just pointed out the windows. The train's going by. Right, we're not. Actually, I I'm, uh, I seem to recall I might have mentioned this movie when we reviewed Easy Rider because uh, both of them have just a lot of this kind of roving eye quality where 
a lot of shots of just not even taking in people, but just taking in snippets of details of the landscape. Right. And, and the idea that, you know, if you're going to shoot a train thing, take it from the character's perspective and shoot the train. If you're going to shoot right. a bus thing, take it from the character, or like, a, you know, the kayak shit. They probably just had the camera on the end of a boat and were just following them down. They didn't <laughs> they didn't build a, a jib and a gimbal over the fucking river and do a crazy ass crane shot. See, I mean, and that I like that because aside from whatever the philosophical merits of the film are, and I think there are many. I like that the film seems to uh, latch on to the character's hunger for adventure. It has, the, I think the camera is w- right with Alex and just like wanting to take as much as possible in. And it kind of makes you, that, what I like about it, what makes it rich to me is in spite of how sad the end is and what happened, it makes you want to go out and have an adventure yourself. And so, in that way, I think it's it becomes life affirming. A sojourn, Brady. A yeah, sojourn. like I, I want to go out. I want to ride a train, and, but not get beaten up by a fat guy with a dog. Uh, we'll say something else. I'm gonna see if I can pull up uh, or get some. All right, I'll, here, I'll say something here else. Here Studio. I know I'm like a my PA or somebody to pull up <laughs> uh, the fucking uh, production notes. I've, I've probably done this before. Can I just preach the gospel of what a good year in film 2007 was? Can I, can I just rattle off this? I'm just going to rattle off what came out that year off the top of your phenomenal. Not well, I've got no source material whatsoever <laughs> I, without source material. I can, I can do that too. All right. I was just going to say, do it with oh. the phone in your hand, but <laughs> pretend that it's all off the top of your head. Oh, but, uh, now that you, uh, pulled the curtain behind the, uh, wizard, uh, aside, uh, go ahead and do it off the top of your head. All right, folks, here we go. I'm, I'm going to go off the top of my head. He's literally doing this off the top of his head. All right. Anyway, he sat mm-hmm. down his phone. Yeah, I sat down my phone. And no, then no. I smashed it with a hammer. I wouldn't be able to look at myself in the mirror if I didn't. If I lied to you guys, it would just be the end. Okay, No Country for Old Men. There Will Be Blood. Once. Zodiac. Ratatouille. Knocked Up. Diving Bell and the Butterfly. Uh, Into the Wild. Sweeney Todd. In my opinion, Tim Burton's best film. Juno, Persepolis, one of the great animated films. We had uh, The Savages. We had 310 to Yuma. We had, okay, now I'm going to look because there's more and I'm forgetting. But Well, that's what he was able to do without his phone. And now he's looking at his now, now I'm looking at my phone, but that I'm, I smashed. It's okay because I'm telling you. Uh, Before the Devil Knows You're Dead, the last uh, great film of Sidney Lumet, the departed Sidney Lumet. Um, the Assassination of Jesse James. Super bad. Four months, three weeks, and two days. The great Romanian abortion drama, uh, and Enchanted with the fabulous Amy Adams. And that's just a smattering. That year was rich, man. Well, I can't find it really easily on whether or not it was digital or uh, film. But the the fact is that the film was it, did it fill the whole screen on the TV? We have letterboxing. Um. Oh fuck it. I think it had letterboxing. Oh, shit, it might have been digital. In which case, I'm wrong about comparing it to Easy Rider, which was shot on 16 millimeter, and um, yeah, it's probably digital. Damn it! <laughs> <laughs> My point is debunked. Anyway, people, shoot on fucking film. Shoot on film, please. Don't listen to give Rob. in to the digital until. Uh, just shoot on film, please. Should we go to? Uh, we should take a break. Metacritical. <laughs> Metacritical? Metacritical. Metacritical. And then we'll be back with what we're doing next week and maybe uh, just sound effects of me kicking Brady in the nuts. 
It could be good. A metacritical. Rob's never gonna win. A metacritical. Brady's the victor again. Woo-hoo. So it's time to play. Ooh-hoo. I'm gonna lose today. Metacritical, yeah, it's time, time to play. Let it go, let it go. Hi everybody, welcome to this edition of Metacritical. Since we did, um, what movie did we do this week? Into the Wild with uh, Gus Van Sant. We got a couple of his films and we're going to hop over to some Robin Williams and uh, other things that could possibly be Yeah, done. yeah. But to start off, since we've got uh, the Sean Penn-directed Emil Hirsch starring Into the Wild... Uh, oh, wait, that's right. No, no, we did Into the Wild. It was directed by Sean Penn, and then it goes to Milk, right? Yeah, because... Uh, and that's Gus Van Sant. Emil Hirsch and Sean Penn, both very fantastic in Milk, along with James Franco and Josh Brolin. Okay, so we'll start with... What are we starting with? Milk. Milk. Right. I need more milk in my coffee. Ah oh, man, I could go for milk. Um, who's starting? Uh, I think you should. Okay. Take the detriment. Take the detriment. Eighty-seven. Damn, that was mine. Milk. Well, I guess it won't be far off. Eighty. 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 Oh. Eighty-four. Oh, okay. So that's four for me and three for you. I'm playing this a little smarter as of late. All right, now this is uh, Rob's idea. We're going Gus Van Sant, who directed Milk, to Last Days, one of Van Sant's experimental films. Yes, it's it's really weird. And remember when I was trying to watch it, my mom kept like yelling at me from the kitchen. She kept trying to complain to me about something or whatever, and I'm like, Mom, I'm trying to watch a really like silent. Like artistic film, <laughs> she's like, "What? What's it about?" She's like, "And why is there a naked man swinging on a vine?" I'm like, "It's about Kurt Cobain's last days." Okay, like, look, just let me watch this interesting thing. I'm a senior in high school, and I'm starting to actually, you know, care about things that could be more than just an action movie yeah, about stuff. So, mm, no, but your you dad know. has <laughs> set the table. I can't stand you enjoying yourself. <laughs> um, uh, okay, so last days, I think not very well received. I have to go first this time. I don't think it was poorly received. Uh, it might have been kind of poorly received. I don't know. It's yeah, I think you're right. It's it's polarizing, I think. Yeah, let's go 65. Oh, that would have been mine. Okay, I'll go... Uh, I'll, I'll go 60. Okay, let's see what happens. Sixty-seven. Oh, okay, very nice. That's two for me and three for you. That's seven for me. Oh, sweet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so now we're gonna go to. A more commercial Vincent, but still a very good one. Uh, Goodwill Hunting. Mm. Oh, shit. 
Okay, this has got to be weird because, I mean, I'm I'm almost positive <laughs> it's in Metacritical or Metacritic. I would think so. It's just it's so famous and Oscar nominated. Okay, so it was so huge at the time. At the time, like every critic loved it, everybody loved it. Everybody was like, "These two talents coming out of Merpado." Yeah, no, no, it yeah. was a big coming out moment. So, and then Williams did it. Um, yeah, Williams won the Oscar. Yeah, that's the only one he's got, right? Yeah, yeah. He's a really good actor. Um, yeah. Anyway, and he made the switch from comedy to that. Okay. Anyway, um, God, is it, is it, is it my pick first? Yeah. Wait. No. I no, it's mine. It's first. yours first. <laughs> yeah. It's tough because you know later critics might have Th- thought. Yeah, it this one is tough. Um, I'm gonna go. Oh, I'll go seventy nine. Okay. Okay. Can pick up what you're putting down. I, I can go with uh, with eighty two, eighty two, eighty two. Wait, can I say that like <laughs> Adam Sandler, eighty two? A scrubadoba. Seventy. Seventy. Yeah, I had a feeling it was one of those more lukewarm. So wait, I got ahead of you maybe by like. Six points, and then now I'm behind you by nine points or something like that. Well, you only lost three on that. Wait, Since I said I was 79, you were 82. So I got 70, so I lost 12 on that. Uh, yeah, and I lost nine. Oh, I see what you mean. Right. So, not too shabby a loss. How many more films we got? How close are we? Two more. Yeah, how close are we? Or should I leave? Oh, you, okay, here. Wh- no, no, I mean... I'll I'll tell you right now. I have nineteen and you have eighteen. So very Ooh. close. Very close. And there's two more. Okay. Uh what's the next one? Next one, uh you proposed this in honor of our fallen brethren Robin Williams. Yeah, no. Rest in peace. Um What Dreams May Come. Right. Which I really want to do on this podcast sometime soon. And I still need to see. Right. So we'll do it on the podcast and you'll see it. Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah, that'll two birds, <laughs> one dream. Stone. Stone. Yeah. Um Okay. Uh, um I think uh heralded for special effects, not really it was very polarizing with critics. There were like two or three who loved it and then like fifty who thought it was bad. Uh so I'm gonna go with like a seventy two. Okay. I'm going to go with, eh, why not just uh, go with the official line of a polarizing movie, a 60. Yeah, because... Love, hate. Yeah, because what I just said was that it was better received than Goodwill Hunting. (laughs) That was stupid. What dreams may cone. Oh, fuck. 44. Ooh. Okay. So that's 16 for you and uh, 28 for me. Yes, it is. Oh, we were one apart. So now we're just 27 apart. Yeah. Fuck. Dude, that's almost my entire score last time. 
Yeah, Last time my always... total score was 33. <laughs> I know, that one, that was a tough one. All right, I need a bullseye. Uh, and you need to fuck up horribly. Okay, well, uh, here comes... It's a film you've never heard of, right? Uh, I've heard of it. And you haven't seen it and you don't really know it very well? Nope, don't know it very well. It's Cuba Gooding Jr.'s uh, apparent disaster boat trip. Oh. Uh, about him landing accidentally on a gay boat. You go first. Cruise. I, this thing was uh, apocalyptically bad, from what I remember. And he was never heard from again. Never again. <laughs> uh, I'm going to go like a 20. Show me the money! <laughs> 20. Show. You can go 20. Uh, I'm going to go with uh, a 16. All right, 16. Moment of truth. I can't win. I just can't win. There's no way I can win because it was 18. Oh, nice. That's even. Put the difference, yeah. All right. So I gained 28 plus 2 plus whatever the fuck I had before that, which was like 5 or 6 for the combination of three movies or something like that. Yeah. And so now my total score is something like 39. Indeed. Well, ladies and gentlemen, with the importance of discourse about homosexuality and gay rights more important than ever, please seek out Cuba Gooding Jr.'s boat trip. Do yourself a favor. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, it's important to, to have diverse views on these topics, not uh, one homogenizing liberal, liberal arts uh, sort of college-taught um, Nazi mentality about how everybody needs to be accepting. I mean... Yeah. Oh, wait. No, everybody should just think for themselves and come to the same correct conclusion. Think for yourself and think what I think. Yeah, there's a dialectic for you. And when you can Anyway, what's both, the what's the results? Uh the results okay. Let me tally these. This'll take just a second. Thirty seven for me. Forty-eight for Rob. I like how Brady looks up in his head as if there's a chalkboard there that he's writing on. Yeah, he's like, "Let me look on the inside of my skull." It makes terrible. I'm gonna move this neuron <laughs> over here to write this shit. So anyway, fucking one again. This time you didn't bait me, but or maybe you were just unbaitable. And then go. Yeah, yeah, masturbatable. Yeah. A metacritical. Fuck you. Hi, everybody. We're back from that game of Metacritical, which I'm going to go ahead and decide right now. I'm angry about. Uh, now I hope you win. Because <laughs> then we can both be angry about it. Um, Are you angry about it? No. I lost my ability to emote in Nam. I see. I see. Well, go ahead and, and spread your legs. Let me kick you in the nuts while we uh, discuss. Oh, and I'm actually doing it. Honesty. Is the theme of this cast. <laughs> <laughs> All right, that All I right. missed. But um, he lost his ability There's to emote, always so you would have week. heard anything about it anyway. <laughs> I would have been pretty blasé about the whole thing. Uh, so, yes, this was a fun podcast. Uh, spoiler full, in case I didn't mention it earlier. Well, you've been thoroughly spoiled, and you might be pissed, but I'm pretty sure I mentioned it halfway through the plot synopsis. Uh, so, too bad that first, you know, I think, 17 yeah, minutes of the film was was uh, spoiled in the first 17 minutes of our plot synopsis. All that matters is we mentioned it before we told you he died. And that's 
the moral. I don't know if we did actually. <laughs> we no, no, we did. I swear. I swear. Um. Anyway. Uh. Yeah. I mean, I guess I didn't know that he died, but I did know that he died because I figured. I just figured that he died. Oh, so you, you didn't know, but you you I, did think. You know, it's been, it's tw- it's been seven years. I'm pretty sure I've heard plenty of times that he died. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I'm always hearing about people dying, though, you know, so it's, uh, yeah, well, well could have been, maybe he could have been mean, like, I people die uh, every day and he, sometimes you hear about it. It's on the news all the time and, and sometimes people I know die, but not lately. Thank God. That's good. Uh, although yeah. uh, not to say that it's any better that they don't die than anybody. Well, I mean, it's better for me. Uh, this is just uh, fucking bad, <laughs> bad, bad pod, Rob. Uh, so next week, don't die. Yeah, n- uh, yeah, listeners, don't die, because um, then we'll have no listeners. <laughs> <laughs> if you all died, um, math. <laughs> okay, so uh, peeping Tom next week, 1960 film by what's his name? Uh, Michael Powell. Uh, yeah. Half of the Powell and Pressburger duo. I haven't seen any of these guys' films. But uh, apparently they're really good, so I'm excited. Yeah, and uh, hopefully, uh, God willing, uh, we will get <laughs> um, my friend Jess, my very good friend Jess, whose name, last name, I don't know. Um, Jess. Well, Jessica, or Jess. Jesting. Yes. That No, not that Jess. No, no, I don't. Her last name's Mark Scale. I know that one. I'm just talking about how good of a friend this Jess is, whose name I don't fully know. Um, She's such a good friend, it was just never... Yeah, right? Okay, okay, I just know her from the bar, okay? (laughs) Anyway, um, (laughs) uh, hopefully she'll be on because she's a very avid uh, proponent of this particular film. And uh, we'll watch it with her, and it'll be awesome. All right, Jess Delbar. Yes. Theme song! (laughs) Carnivorous couch Shit happens once a week It swallows us for two hours When we try to sleep It forces us to watch a film About which we then speak Carnivorous couch With Brady and Rob